2: And we spent five seasons of Loose Units the podcast talking through his cases, but the unexplained and the paranormal kept rearing their heads. So this season, we're going to take a look at hauntings, ghost stories, and the crimes behind them, because the story doesn't end when the killing is done. Welcome to Loose Units The Shadow Files. Welcome back to Loose Units The Shadow Files. I'm Paul Verhoeven, and my dad, John Verhoeven, and I. Every week, tackle all kinds of cases set in some of Australia's most apparently haunted locations. Now, last week was part one of The Street with No Name. For those of you who follow us on Facebook, you'll be able to see video of Dad actually arriving at The Street with No Name. But we spent the episode talking about some pretty intense stuff. And at the end of the episode, we both sort of looked at each other. And thought, you know what, there's just still way too much to talk about. There's so many atrocities that weren't delved into this week. So this is part two, looking at the street with no name. There's a few different things that we could actually delve into. This street has quite a few cases that we could dive into. But the one that we wanted to talk about this week
1: took place back in 1968. Is that correct? A young boy, at the time, was three years of age. The offending guy, Derek Ernest Percy, although he was never charged, he was actually in the vicinity, and the parents, uh, one of the the father, who up until recently was a professor in Sydney, he um, he and his wife just they in their hearts knew that this low life um, was the offender, and but this guy, this horrifically sadistic. Um, child killer, who was also a mutilator, one of his sort of one of the things that he used as part of his MO. His name was Derek Ernest Percy. And mm. um he was he was a seriously, seriously fucked up human being. Paul, we started last week with the death of the two boys. Yes. And then um inadvertently we discovered that very, very close by to the street uh with no name in fact, where Christine and I had been walking, they had some years earlier. Can you refresh the listeners, Paul, as to the date?
2: Yeah, so that's a place on the 11th of May, 1968, mm-hmm. sometime between
1: 11.30am uh, and 12.30pm. To get things into perspective, Christine and I, we went up the, the road this morning for coffee Yeah, and... As we're approaching the coffee shop, I and I didn't say anything to Christine. It was just sort of me preparing myself mentally for mm. the podcast. Yeah. And I saw a mother. She would have been in her early 30s. And she was sitting with her daughter. And the daughter was around about three years of age. She was, she had a nice little sort of like a fairy dress on. She was really cute. She sort of looked up and looked at Christine and myself and sort of, she was just sweet and she was sort of staring at us and the mother said oh you know don't don't stare but she was just quite lovely and you know I mean you can't sort of you know do a character sort of analysis on on a young kid in just by seeing them but it just sort of reminded me of when you kids were little and then it started to remind me of the fact that some of these children like this particular young boy who was three, the same age as this girl, how I I just was thinking and it kind of in a way put me off my breakfast a little bit even though I didn't communicate that with Christine because I don't want to sort of completely ruin every single Sunday with Christine. (laughs) Like last week was sort of the, you know, the murder hunt location. (laughs) And I'm not going to sort of be sitting there. Hey, uh, babe, finally got a day off. Uh,
2: Let's go for a walk. Oh, what's this? The site of a gruesome murder. Let's film it. And then
1: this Sunday, of course, so what you've tried to do is sort of keep that to a minimum. Keep so, so you saved it for us instead. Yeah, yeah, save it for you and, and, and the, the listeners. Yeah, um, yeah. But on a serious note, Paul, I I wanted to try and imagine how a human being, generally speaking, but not always, but in fact, it's... Important to remember that remember that there have been some absolutely horrendous murders with women involved, uh, or or where people work in tandem, the Moores murders in England, which are so horrific, I would find it very uncomfortable even now talking about them. And you know, you look back at the little kids and you just try and think how a human can abduct a young child who's done nothing to them, who is totally innocent. Take them away and just do terrible things to them. And one of the very, very interesting things about Derek Ernest Percy, who has never been charged, might I add, for... He was charged for one murder. Hey, just quickly,
2: Dad, as a thought exercise... You and mum had very young children and you were a police officer at this point. Did you ever feel, you know, that sort of weird awareness that we were quite, you know, children are very vulnerable. I mean, if you leave them out, something could happen to them, anything could happen, an accident, a misadventure or whatever. Did you ever get that sort of feeling that, you know, you were very much aware of how in danger we were and how vulnerable we were?
1: Look, it's a parent's natural instinct to look after and, you know, nurture and hopefully love and bring the kids up. And kids, make no mistake, are also, you know, and can be very demanding. It's weird, Paul, because, and I often think about that, it's a very interesting point, and I guess what I would like to do is find out from other police officers, mm-hmm. you know, how they go about their, you know, are they overly protective? I, I think, in a way, Christine and I were not, and we also weirdly statistically were aware and i guess the listeners should always be aware that the chances of something terrible happening to your kids are so small almost infinitesimal which doesn't mean you should abrogate all responsibility and just go well you know i can comfortably leave them in the pram at the front of the house while i go back in and turn the power off or something like that that that, to me would be mind numbingly insane Mm. and you know so i guess it's a fine line i'm a little bit concerned about modern day parenting in so far as you just don't seem to have you know children sort of exercising the same freedoms i don't know why that is i i I don't think, statistically, more children are being kidnapped, murdered today than, than say, 20, 30, 40 years ago. In fact, all the crimes we're talking about in these podcasts um, happened in the past.
2: Well, to that end, could you walk us through the chain of events that led to Simon Brook going missing? Uh, chronologically, because this took place, yeah, around lunchtime on the 11th of May 1968, and that's quite a while ago... Could you walk us through what actually happened to him? from the, Maybe from the perspective of the parents.
1: Paul, I've just managed to find an article in the Sydney Morning Herald in relation to that particular murder mm-hmm. that we're about to talk about. It's pretty heavy, um, but I think if I read it from the paper, it'll sort of set the scene. Okay, okay. Simon, bearing in mind he was three years old, went missing on a cold, windy Saturday, May 18th, 1968. He was last seen at 11.30am by his father, Donald, in the front yard of their small single-storey terrace in Alexandra Lane, Glebe Point. Professor Brooke, then a Doctor of Philosophy and Senior Lecturer in the Arts at Sydney University, checked an hour later to find the boy gone and the front gate open. Professor Brooke and his wife were English immigrants who had lived in Canberra for six years. He thought Simon must have wandered over to nearby Jubilee Park to play, but the little boy was nowhere to be seen. On an oval in the park, a men's hockey match was being played. Police who went to the scene established that Simon, dressed in a distinct blue tartan jacket, orange trousers and bright, and bright red shoes, had been standing on a hilltop overlooking the playground, but had not joined other children at play. Two men had been chatting on a bench in the area. A third man was seen sitting alone, while two women were lying on the grass. Earlier, a man had been seen walking his dog close to the boy. Police began a search of surrounding streets that went well into the night and included divers combing nearby Blackwattle Bay. Dawn broke grey over the suburb that Sunday as police prepared to widen the search less than 400 metres from the brook home, a labourer, Felici Lampasona of Leichhardt, arrived early outside 268 Glee Point Road to begin a a 7am shift building a block of units. Desperate to relieve himself, he went to the rear of the property that had become overgrown with grass and trees. It was there he found Simon. In the grass beside a crude track he saw what appeared to be a doll, partly covered by a rotting tarpaulin. He lifted it. Holy mother of God, I was frightened. I reeled back and was sick, he later told police. Such a dreadful, horrible sight. Only a raving maniac would have inflicted such cuts. Police who viewed the scene were repulsed by the wounds. Simon was naked from the waist down, lying face up. The city coroner, Mr. J.J. Looms, was told at a subsequent inquest in January nineteen sixty nine that failed to determine who the killer was, and Paul, that's from, well, that's that's verbatim uh, from the article taken out of the Sydney Morning Herald. But mm. in my study and research on this particular case, I also gleaned the fact that during the post mortem, yeah, they discovered that his entire esophagus had been rammed with newspaper. <sighs> the hypothesis that I would draw from that is that the boy was still alive when he had the paper rammed down his throat. But he also had cuts all over
2: his body, didn't he? I mean, I think there was a razor blade found near near his body or near his clothes or something. So does that mean the paper was stuffed down his throat and he was attacked with the knife and he couldn't cry out? Correct. What was actually happening? To stop,
1: to stop the... um. You know, to stop the screams a fucking three year old dad mm. yep that's no, pretty pretty terrible hence my earlier comment about you know young young children it's it's terrible and um no one has ever ever been charged. however, there has long been a suspect for that horrendous crime, and many many others. and this particular guy, Derek Ernest Percy one of the things that he used to do Mm -hmm. is that he used to use razor blades. And quite often, the razor blades were military or naval issue. Why is that pertinent to this story? Because he was in the Navy. And when he was in the Navy, he would have travelled around Australia and his father was very much interested in sailing and and wherever there were sort of regattas on the boy would be with the family and Mm. but you know if you go back through the early life of this this character he look when he was a very very small boy his grandmother would and i say funnily enough in a sort of a perverse way but we recall we were talking about the ties they in last episode those those plastic ties, the one that was found in the car park. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, this particular guy's um, grandmother would hog tie him and leave him hog tied in his bedroom as a little boy. So, you know, and and remember the crossbow killer. His mother, his grandmother, used to get him to torture animals, and you know the things start to happen fairly early on in life. And what happened was, with this Percy character, who was a suspect in the particular case of the three-year-old boy, in fact, he made admissions later on that he was in that suburb at the time of the abduction. And also the fact that he used razor blade to inflict terrible injury, particularly on the lower limbs, the lower legs. It's so, so creepy and bizarre. Mm Mm-hmm. But when you go back through this particular person's early history, things started to go awry. He he was in the bush one day. He went to this school uh, down near Mount Kosciuszko, and his father worked for the Snowy Mountains Project. He was an engineer, and some of his classmates were just sort of on a sort of a walk through the bush, and they came across. A person dressed, well, they thought it was a girl. This person was wearing a dress. And then, as they got closer and they thought something wasn't quite right, and they recognized this person as a boy in their class, the boy then removed the dress and he was also wearing female underwear and he dropped to his knees and he began slashing the crutch. Of the female underpants and these two boys were so shocked they didn't approach him of course but then they began to realize and, and neighbors were complaining that you know underwear was going it was hanging on clothes lines and he developed a sort of a desire this young Percy to um to go out at nighttime and take underwear off neighbours, you know, off the clotheslines. And then he would, well, you can imagine all, all the s- sorts of things that he would do. And then there was a, um, and they moved a few times, but then one day a neighbour approached Percy's mother and father and said, Look, we've just come back from holidays and someone has been into our daughter's bedroom and taken her underwear. So this guy this Dennis Percy he was a young boy at the time he had allegedly broken into the neighbor's house stolen the young girl's underwear so you can kind of start to see that things start to he starts to go off the tracks and then but he was a very very good student as well and he had a very high IQ then one day he at another school he went to they had a particular type of tie Uh, an unusual tie and somehow or other his parents had acquired a tie but it wasn't quite the same tie it was sort of a slightly rougher material and when he went to school that day he was severely bullied and then things just started to, to to go downhill so began the the downfall of this particular person and he used to write very dark um you know stories, and there's reference to a school magazine, and he described himself to the magazine, and you sort of had to do a bit of an overview of how you saw yourself. And he said that he saw himself as a sort of a, a loner, a playboy, all all these things. He was not a bad-looking guy, um, but as time went by, he eventually joined the navy, and he was actually <clears throat> going to become an officer in the Royal Australian Navy. And then the very, very first case that he was sort of involved in was the murder of a girl called Yvonne Toohey. And she was a 12-year-old girl and she was at a beach in a small town called Warneat. Do you know that place? No, I don't. In Western Port Bay, Victoria. And in July 1969, she was just talking with a friend in... His name was Shane Spiller and he was 11 and this 21 year old naval rating like a young sailor he he seized the young girl and put a knife to her throat and the story goes that he would probably have abducted the 12 year old boy as well but the 12 year old boy weirdly was carrying a tomahawk which he waved at this Percy guy as Percy began to approach him as well so this Percy guy's trying to abduct an eight year old and a twelve year old at the beach. I mean clearly fucking insane. But what happened was the young girl was she she vanished. And this twelve year old boy he described to the police this this character and he described his car and he said that it had a naval badge on the car. And with that description, the police attended HMAS Cerebus, which is down in Melbourne. Yeah, and they found out that this Percy guy was on weekend leave, and within three hours of the murder, they caught him red-handed. He was washing the blood from his clothes. This was Yvonne. Now, I've
2: I've actually found the coroner's inquest. Yep, on this, and it goes through, and it's it's public record. It's pretty amazing stuff. It actually it's a twelve-page document. It goes through the coroner's and you know different experts' opinions on each of the people. Uh, who were murdered by Percy. It finishes with Yvonne Tui, And, oh, God, this is so intense. I'm just going to read from here for you. 11 months after Linda's disappearance, that's Linda Stilwell, his prior victim, Derek Percy admitted killing Yvonne Tui in the following circumstances. Yvonne and her friend Shane Spiller, both aged 12 years, went for a walk along Ski Beach neat and were observed by Derek Percy, who was seated nearby in his cream-colored Datsun car. Once satisfied they were alone, And this is from a coroner's report, so it's going to get pretty blunt. He alighted and tied a knife in a sheath around his waist. On approaching the children, he took hold of Yvonne around her neck and placed the knife at her throat. Shane then raised a tomahawk he was carrying to scare their attacker off. However, Derek Percy demanded Shane disarm himself and come with him. Shane then ran off and alerted his parents, who contacted police. I'm not going to talk about... mm, Derek Percy forced Yvonne into his car and drove to a secluded area where he sexually assaulted her and then subjected her to perverse and degrading acts before forcing material down her throat to gag her, which, again, is what he did with the kid at the start of this episode. Mm. He then tried to strangle her, couldn't do it, used a knife to kill her, and then... Um, he dragged her body a short distance and concealed it in scrub. And this, I think, is important. Admirably, Shane kept his wits about him and was able to give the police a detailed description of Derek Percy's car, like you said, and in particular the Navy stickers he had seen on it. Police immediately attended HMAS Cerberus as it was the closest naval base to Warnit. After Shane identified the car in the car park, police were directed to Derek Percy's barracks and found him washing his clothes, which, again, is what you said. A subsequent search of his car and barracks located a bloody knife, drawings of naked children and handwritten notes spanning the preceding four years leading up to his arrest. These writings detailed in bizarre form the abduction, torture, sexual assault and murder of children of varying ages. Following his incarceration, material of a similar nature was found in Derek Percy's cell at HM Prison Pentridge when prison officers conducted a search on 28th of September, 1971. That's two years after this point. Initially, Derek Percy denied any involvement in Yvonne's abduction, sexual assault, and death. After his participation in in an identification parade and learning he had been positively identified, his story changed to, I can't remember, and later on to, I was at Warneet, but I have no memory of anything else. And then it goes through some expert opinions from criminologists, forensic pathologists. Dad, you know, you were one of those, so you know what's going on there. A forensic psychologist, a senior sergeant, an officer in charge of behavioral analysis, homicide squad people. You know, everyone kind of goes through and breaks down why he did what he did. Now, I believe he died in, was it 2013? I think he died in 2013. Yeah, so he basically died. Um, mm. He died age 64 in a Melbourne hospital. Mm. And uh, the parents of Simon Brook, who would have been 48 years old mm. um, back in 2013, mm. um, had, had he not been murdered uh, when he was three years old. The parents basically said that, uh, and this is a quote from them, because they were hoping for a deathbed confession Yes, from Derek Percy. Mm. And he wouldn't give him one, but the parents said...
1: Paul, I know, you're going to say that the parents said they don't care because they know it was him, and that's fantastic. Mm. They know. But the thing is, Paul, that they understand. The, the leading psychiatrist that interviewed Percy, they know that he, I'm not going to say had the ability, but he actually could erase information from his memory that was so traumatic. And there's a very famous record of interview where in relation to the young boy Mm -hmm. that we were talking about, the three-year-old, he says, because what happened was, okay, this is incredible.
2: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
1: What happened was the homicide squad relatively recently, prior to Percy passing away, they found out that a friend of Percy's, a school boyfriend had been a police officer and they got this police officer to go into the cell at Pentridge jail and befriend Percy and everything was going really well and Percy in fact it was basically just after Percy had been arrested for the murder of the young girl okay the first time that he was sort of arrested and he uh, they describe as this young police officer walks into the cell and Percy's bawling he's just he's inconsolable he's going what have I done and and the thing about this guy Percy that that it, it is alleged is that it was always very important to get him very soon after the crime because he would actually basically all knowledge of the event supposedly would basically just it would be put in a vault and it could never be retrieved mm. and this young police officer was actually getting some incredible information out of him and he was he actually said to the policeman because they'd been school friends you know i i know i was there he made admissions to being at the scenes of many many of the most terrible murders of young kids in australia and i mean some of the most notorious and horrendous and still as yet unsolved crimes, but with very similar MO to this particular guy, and things were going pretty well, and he actually said to the policeman, look, I I, I wish I could remember. I, I know that I was there on the day. Um, you know, I, I want to remember. And then what happened was a prison warder said to the police officer, because apparently Percy didn't know that he was a police officer, and he says to the police officer, oh, uh, you've got no right, you, you, you've Vic police or something. He made some comment and all of a sudden Percy looks up and realised that he was being set up and his friend was no longer a friend but a police officer working hand-in-hand hand with the homicide squad, albeit that he was a very junior police officer and didn't have all those sort of you know interrogation skills. But apparently things were really he was getting some red hot info and it was completely blown out of the water the, the prison water just said you've got no right to be here i mean i'd love to know more about how they kind of organized that interview um it, it sounds fairly ad hoc and it certainly wasn't recorded um and yeah the the you know the police officer to this day remembers uh you know what could have happened but one of the critical things about this particular case and it's to be i'm not sure whether the legislation has been changed but if you are found guilty by by way of sort of insanity the police cannot take dna from you and as a result of him being found guilty and to be never released in other words to be kept at the governor's pleasure and in this particular case, he died in custody. They have kept DNA from various murders, but they never got the DNA off Percy, Right, which is just so unbelievable. And I know that they were trying to change the legislation. In other words, if you were, were a sort of a, a notorious, as this guy was, horrendous, child killer, sadistic monster, and you were found insane... They, under that legislation, they couldn't take your DNA to compare, which is quite staggering. But, um, Paul, I remember when I was a young boy, because I'm just going to tell you and the listeners another pretty amazing, and it'll all tie in sort of to what we're talking about. But when I was a young boy at a change room at Curl Curl Beach, I was by myself, and I'm quite sure I've mentioned this to you and the listeners over the years, but... There was a guy in the change rooms who, without a doubt, was a child molester. And it was so creepy. And I remember bolting and being very, very scared. I was a vulnerable child. And at the time I would have been maybe eight years old. And there are people that just, you know, hang out in in, in places where they know. And a beach is an amazing place. To, because you can sit on the sand you can sit on a chair there are thousands of people and you can you can just you're just free to to look at whoever you like because no one knows who you are and you might see a victim a potential victim and then you see that they're with a family then you see the parents go out into the surf and leave that particular child on the beach and this certainly used to happen a lot more back when we were young then the the potential um, offender has an opportunity. He, he's eyeballed the parents. He's seen them. He could be casing that scene for for an hour. He's just, and then he just goes over. He picks the kid up, and if it's a very young kid, the kid, even if the kid screams, what people on the beach are going to react if you see a man carrying a kid up the sand towards the car park what people would honestly think to themselves that kid's being kidnapped the the chances are most people would look at the kid and go the kid's screaming the, the dad's taking him up to the car or take him to buy him an ice cream or something
2: yeah i think all you've done is just scare the shit out of anyone who's got kids really but i, I guess yeah, vigilance is very important vigilance
1: is very important but i mean it's like people down at the beach every morning it's a very very it's a far sort of. It's, it's not the best analogy paul but it's, it's it's all about how one sort of it's like the people that leave their car keys on the top side of the tire and they go out and, and have a surf mm. and i mean and i'm i'm i, I leave my keys and the, just i pop the back of the tonneau cover and just pop the keys in because i don't want to lose them on the sand and one day i'll probably come back to me yet and it'll be gone but paul this morning when i woke up i i subscribed to the bbc news as well mm-hmm and, um, boy, oh, boy, it's it's fate because it's an unusual story and it's a terribly sad story and it's a notorious story about a girl called Cheryl Grimmer. Can you... It's the most extraordinary story, Paul, and it's it's a very, very heart-wrenching story. It's very, very sad.
2: Well, we got to uh let's see but it's
1: been featured on the bbc which is but it's about an australian fa- uh, english family that emigrated out here mm. it's it's a classic story of uh, the three-year-old girl you know the, the boys the brothers the mother had said take take your daughter up and there was like a southerly buster coming through you know that you know that that intense wind that comes through on the beaches on the east coast generally about one o'clock in the arvo, and all the families were running up the sand and the mum said to the the brothers look just Go up there with your sister. The sister was three. The sister goes into the female change rooms, which is really creepy in itself, the more you think about that, because what happened was that the, the, the brothers were too scared to sort of, you know, nervous to go in and what maybe see nude women. So they ran down to their mum because they stood there for about a minute and then they, they shouted out to their little sister. She was three and she never came out. And the boys ran to their mum. Mum comes up and the girl's gone. She'd been abducted she's never ever been seen since Mm. to think to think that on the balance of probabilities there was a man a predator waiting in the female change rooms for a young girl to come in and then abduct her i mean that's the most likely thing then there are other theories that i've thought about this morning that maybe that the kid could still be alive and Maybe a family abducted uh, that were childless. Look, there are all sorts of things you can, you know, hypothesise about. But it's you're right about look being a parent, mate. It's um I guess if you thought about this sort of stuff all the time, you go crazy. Yeah. You'd go, you'd go crackers.
2: One of the things that I find interesting about this location that we've looked at over the past two episodes, this street with no name, and you know, you've been there. It must be weird living next to these places and knowing what's happened there and trying to go. You know what? It's just a place. It's just a coincidence. And mm. it, and it probably is. But I mean, I'll close out. When we went there, did you get any? Did you get any vibes from the place? What did you, like? What's your reader on it? Is it just a place? Is it, are people the problem, or is there something wrong with this location?
1: No, the place is odd. Right. Yeah, it's. It's, it's the whole the whole thing about why, why it's like a jungle in the smack bang in the middle of the CBD. Mm-hmm. It truly it's, it's it's so thick and there's something weird Uh It's, it's, it's cordoned off for a reason. Um, it's just you know how some you, you know how you you and Tegan love walking. and when you used to live um, in that pretty posh suburb in Melbourne, We all used to go on those long, long walks and you'd go through streets and you would just get such a wonderful vibe from some of the streets because streets have different vibes, don't they? Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about it. What about those incredible, amazing terraces where we live, Paul? They're they're, they're just beautiful and you've got the trees, you've got the leaves, you've got the... It's just the vibe, isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah. everything that I'm talking about that's positive and wonderful place, is absolutely yeah. negative there. Yeah. And and I can well and truly believe it's just kind of something. I, I, I know that over the duration of these podcasts, Paul, you've always tried to figure out whether the place would be like that if you didn't know about the stuff. Yeah, And I think that's really interesting. But I would also say to you that there are places that are really, really depressing. And there are places that make you feel great. Yeah, That's without knowing anything about what's happened. So it's kind of, yeah.
2: I mean, what we're trying to do here is look at locations that people say are haunted and people talk about this place and they claim to have gotten a weird read off it. I don't know if it's haunted, but it's certainly a lot of horrible things have happened there. And there's other stuff that's happened there that we didn't even get time to touch on in these episodes. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff. Mm. And there's locations all over Australia that are just like this, Mm. that seem to have terrifying things happening in them over the years, and you can't help but wonder whether the location is the problem. You know, you can't help but start to think, is there's just something about this place that isn't right. To that end, everybody listening, if you know of somewhere that has had just a bunch of terrifying shit happen, you know, crime-related, and people are talking about it as if the place is the problem please get in touch at facebook.com forward slash loose units we want your recommendations for places for us to investigate we've actually really enjoyed digging a little deeper and going through news articles and witness statements and coroner's inquests and really and even going there in on person in person and trying to actually You know, figure out what's wrong with these places. And that's the direction this season of Loose Units is going to take. That's what the Shadow Files is going to be now. We're going to start investigating these places, looking into these crimes a little bit deeper. So we hope you've enjoyed this two-part episode and this look at the street with no name. And we hope you're all doing okay. We're going to be back later this week with more Loose Ends. And we are going to take a bit more of a look at this bicycle gang. Because it turns out, Dad, lots of people have gotten in touch because you're not alone. This is... This is a bit of a thing. So we're going to talk about that at the end of this week. Dad, you're heading across to... Um,
1: Thailand. To Thailand. So yeah. when the listeners hear me next Friday, mm-hmm. I will be coming to them, all of you, from Thailand. And I'm, I'm hoping to put a slight Thai slant on some of the... Uh, On some of the stories, because this morning uh, we found out that a Canadian-slash-Indian gangster was shot 12 times in a car park in Phuket. So, and if you want to talk about really, really messed up, violent, heavy, bad shit happening, Thailand's a really great place for that. So I thought we might tell a few local stories as well.
2: Yeah, also... um... There's something fairly special happening
1: for you very soon. Yes, there? I'm um, having my birthday. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate.
2: So we're going to do a little something for that
1: as oh, well. Oh, well, that's exciting. Yeah. Did you get me a nice present, Paul?
2: Uh, yeah, it's a long story. Oh, I love it. Yep.
1: All right.
2: Anyway, everyone, thank you so much for listening to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. We miss you all terribly, but we'll see you at the end of the week for Loose Ends. Have a great week, everyone. Bye. Bye bye.
1: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from InvestGo QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com/QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors Inc.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better?